John 20, 1 to 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The word of the Lord. One of the earliest viral YouTube videos was by a fellow named Hungry Bear 9562. <laughs> Does anybody remember Hungry Bear? Otherwise known as the Double Rainbow Man? Oh, yeah. He walks out the front door of his Yosemite home and he sees this vivid double rainbow stretched out in front of him and he just starts flipping out. He's going on and on. It's like a full-on double rainbow all the way across the sky. Oh my gosh, it's starting to look like a triple rainbow. You know, rainbows are beautiful, but this guy's reaction is over the top. At one point, he starts weeping uncontrollably. But then he asks the question. He says, what does this mean? In fact, he asks it a couple of times. Can somebody tell me what this means? And as funny as that video is, it points to something really significant about us as human beings. We are voracious meaning makers. I guarantee you that um, bears and bunny rabbits do not sit at the edge of the forest looking at rainbows, asking themselves, what does this mean? But human beings do. That's the question Peter has when he comes to this tomb. He, he comes to the empty tomb, he sees the grave clothes lying there, and he's furiously trying to figure it out. In fact, even the word it uses when it says he saw the linen cloths lying there, that word for seeing there is not the normal word for seeing. It's, it's a word from which we get our English word theory or theorize. It's a word that means to examine or to investigate and to ask, what does this mean? That was Peter's question. It's our question too. What does it mean that these grave clothes were lying there? Why does John make such a big deal about this particular aspect of the story? Yes, the simple answer is it means Jesus is risen from the dead. But why this particular story? Why does he put such emphasis on these grave clothes? He mentions it three times. Why does the resurrection matter? What difference does it make in our lives? What difference does it make in this world? Why should you even care that Jesus is risen from the dead? These grave clothes tell us. In fact, they have three messages for us, and I want to look at each one of these messages in turn this morning. There's a message for our minds, there's a message for our hearts, 
and there's a message for our lives, okay? A message for our minds, our hearts, and our lives. Let's look at the first one. There's a message here for our minds. Um, One of the main things the grave clothes show us is that the body of Jesus was not stolen. You know, in that culture, grave robbing was a real problem. So in verse 1, when Mary Magdalene gets to the empty tomb and she doesn't see the body, she runs and she tells Peter and John, she says, someone's taken the body. That would have been anybody's default assumption in that world. But the grave clothes lying there tell us that's not what happened. It's telling us that this is a physical resurrection. In the first place, no grave robber would have um, taken the time to unwrap the body. And even if they did, they wouldn't have taken the time to wrap it up all nice and neat like that. I mean, all nice and neat like that. (laughs) But even more than that, you know, the linen cloths and especially all of the uh, spices that were wrapped up in this were enormously valuable. No grave robber would have left that behind. It was a small fortune. No, the message is simple. The, the, The tomb is empty, but the body has not been stolen. This is a physical resurrection. And notice especially what John says uh, in verses 8 and 9. He says, he saw, he's talking about himself. He says, he saw and he believed. Notice, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. One of the main points John is making is that even if you don't understand scripture, even if you don't believe the Bible, there is still good, historical, reliable evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is why this is important for all of us. First, if you're a skeptic, this is showing us that having faith in Jesus doesn't mean turning off your mind. It means using your mind. That even if you don't believe the Bible, there are still historical facts that you have to deal with. And, and one of the big ones is this, right here in this passage. It's the empty tomb. Most scholars throughout the world, whether conservative or liberal, they all agree that Jesus' tomb was empty. They'll debate why it was empty, but they don't deny that it was empty. And one of the the reasons is right here in our passage, and um, it's a very simple reason. And the simple reason is this. The early church was founded on the proclamation that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. That's just history 101. And we also know that the religious establishment and the Roman Empire was deeply committed to squashing the church. They wanted to wipe it out. If that's the case, the easiest and fastest way to do it would have been to produce the body. No one ever did it. They never did it. Now, somebody might say, well, um, what if the disciples were just so heartbroken about the loss of Jesus, and they wanted so badly to believe that he wasn't really dead that they just imagined that he was risen from the dead and started to tell other people, and then the whole legend just grew up around that. That's probably one of the most common um, explanations for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's also the most historically impossible. And here's why. We live in a modern scientific world. That means for us, we have a worldview that makes it very difficult for us to believe in a physical resurrection. But if you go back and study first century worldviews, you'll find out that not only was it um, difficult for them to believe in resurrection, it was even more difficult for people in that time and age to believe in a physical resurrection. It was difficult for the Greeks, but it would have been even more difficult for Jewish people The Jewish worldview believed in a general resurrection, but it would be at the end of history 
when the Messiah would come and inaugurate God's kingdom on earth and, and bring perfect total healing to the world. It would be a time of, of when there would be no more death, no more disease, no more war, no more poverty, no more oppression. So if you had told somebody back in the ancient world that one man had risen from the dead, that he was the Messiah, that he was crucified, and now he was risen from the dead, they would have said, oh yeah? Then why are the Romans still in power? Why are people still sick or poor or dying? Resurrection my foot. There is no way they would have believed it. In fact, that is still, to this day, one of the main obstacles that Jewish people have to having faith in Jesus as the Messiah. It would have been the equivalent of telling you or me that the law of gravity is no longer in effect. It would be inconceivable. There's no way we can imagine that. We'd say, what do you mean? I'm still planted to the ground. There's no way. No one would have ever thought of that. The disciples would never have imagined this. The idea that the Messiah could have been crucified and was now risen was completely against everything in their worldview. There's no way the disciples would ever have imagined this. And even if they did, even if it happened to occur to their mind, they would never have said, oh, this is a great way to convince the rest of the world about our movement. Especially given the fact that they said the women were the first eyewitnesses. You know, in the first century, women's testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. They were laughed at. They were mocked at. If you want to get a movement off the ground that's going to be this radical shift in people's worldview, the last thing you would do is make women your eyewitnesses. And yet every single one of the gospel accounts is unanimous in telling us that women were the first ones to see Jesus risen from the dead, and they were the first ones to go and tell the dull apostles that Jesus was risen from the dead. If you're going to try and get a movement off the ground, you don't make women your primary eyewitnesses unless it happened, unless it's true. Here's what's so extraordinary about this. This was a, a shift in, in people's worldview, and it happened overnight. We know that, historically speaking, within a few years of the death of Jesus, thousands upon thousands of Jewish people were believing in him, were following him, were worshiping him. They had had a radical revolution in their worldview, and it happened overnight. You know, when worldviews change, it takes decades for something like that to happen. And there's always dialogue about that. There's always debate. There's always controversy. So if you look at our culture, if you look at all the radical changes that have happened in our culture over the past several decades, not only has it taken decades to happen, but, but there's, there's a record of that. You can look at the books or the newspapers or the TV shows or the magazines and the journal articles. There is a cultural record of the radical worldview shifts that have happened in our culture over the last several decades. But if you go back and read the documents in the ancient world, you will see there's none of that. There's no debate. There's no dialogue. There's no controversy. What you have is an overnight worldview revolution that is unprecedented in the history of civilization. Unprecedented. Friends, if you're skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus Christ then I understand, and, and you should be, and you should investigate it. But even so, you have to come up with a plausible, alternative explanation for the resurrection that can do justice to all of the historical facts. 
So that if you're a skeptic, that means that, that you have to come up with some other explanation for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I understand this is difficult. This is a worldview shift. It was difficult for the ancient world. It's just as difficult for us, especially because we live in a culture that says spirituality is great if it works for you, but it's not true for everybody. Our culture denies that spiritual reality is true in the sense that gravity is true or, or the need for sound economic policies. It says, look, spirituality is fine if it works for you, if it's an add-on or a supplement to your life, but it's not true for everybody. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then spiritual reality is the ultimate reality, and Jesus Christ is the source of it. Listen, I, you know, I understand that if you're exploring faith in Jesus Christ, that there are all kinds of questions and struggles and obstacles um, that come along with that. But here's the thing. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, then none of those questions matter. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, it's the only question that matters. If you're a skeptic this morning, I want to invite you, whatever you think about the Bible, investigate the history, investigate the evidence, let it challenge your mind. But if you are a Christian this morning, here's why this is important for you. The life of faith is not easy. Every single one of us, we're going to waver, we're going to doubt, we're going to have questions, we're going to have struggles. It's not easy. And when you go through times like that, you need an anchor for your soul. You know, every single one of the 12 apostles, except for John, died a martyr's death. What do you think got them through that? The resurrection of Jesus. I can't tell you how many times when I've been struggling, when I've been doubting, and I have, when I've been wondering, you know, I, I don't know what to do with all of this stuff. Sometimes Jenny and I sit and we just talk. It's like, is what we believe just crazy? Do we just believe in a sham? And when I do, what I do is I go back to the resurrection. I go, okay, I, you know, I don't know about all this other stuff. And I've got doubts about some of these things. And I'm curious about all this other stuff. But there's one thing I'm about as confident of that as I am of just about anything else in all of reality. And that's that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Nothing else makes sense. That's an anchor for me. And it can be an anchor for you too. When you're struggling, when you're doubting, when you're weeping... The resurrection of Jesus Christ can get you through. Friends, the resurrection is a message for our minds. Let it challenge you with the, horse, with the historical reality and let the historical reality encourage you. Now, that's the first thing. It's a message for our minds. But secondly, the resurrection is a message for our hearts because there's another thing that these grave clothes show us. It's very interesting, when you're reading through this passage, all of the commentators and scholars point this out. As we're reading through and this emphasis, this focus on the grave clothes comes, comes up, um, all the commentators point out, we're supposed to remember John chapter 11. That's John's intention as he's writing. If you go back to John chapter 11, that's when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There's a, a little detail there. It says that when Lazarus came out of the tomb, he still had the grave clothes on. But when Jesus came out of the tomb, he left the grave clothes behind. The grave clothes represent death's grip on us. We're all like Lazarus. But it's not just death's grip on us. It's not just physical death. In the Bible, the, the physical experience of death is a physical manifestation of something that's going on in our souls. 
the Bible always connects the outer condition of death with the inner condition of sin. So, for instance, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, when God tells Adam, don't eat the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says uh, that God said, on the day you eat of the tree, that will be the day you die. Now, Adam ate, but he didn't physically die, but he did put his grave clothes on. Spiritually, his soul started decomposing. The very first man of creation started to experience a kind of decreation. Or if you read Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul talks about that whole story. And at the end of chapter 6, he says, the wages of sin is death. The stench of death is a vivid, graphic, sensory picture of the spiritual decomposition of our souls, your soul and my soul. It's a kind of decreation. Whenever I think about this, I always remember when I moved to New York City in, the July, in July of, of 2001. It was really hot that summer, and I was moving into a tiny little room on the top story of a four-story walk-up. And uh, um, the building was what's known as an SRO, which means single room occupancy, although we finally referred to it as standing room only. <laughs> I had an 8 by 10 room. And uh, it had a tiny little sink and a tiny little closet. And all the neighbors on the floor had one bathroom that we shared that was down at the end of the hall. And they were colorful neighbors, too. Um, one of them was a retired merchant marine named Eddie. He had bad knees and Coke bottle glasses. Uh, another one was a, uh, a Korean war vet named Bill. His wife was a Bronx-born Puerto Rican woman named Luce. And there was one other neighbor. He was a mystery man, though. Nobody ever saw him. I never saw him. He never came out of his room. Except, I was told, maybe once a week, and even that, it was like at three in the morning, something like that. Um, but I remember after I'd been living there for a few weeks, um, there was a smell coming from the end of the hall. And I asked my neighbor, Eddie, about it, and he said, eh, must be a dead rat that died in the wall. <laughs> and I thought, okay, you've lived here your whole life. If you say it's a dead rat, it's a dead rat. <laughs> but a couple of weeks later, the smell was getting worse. And, and I remember one afternoon, it was really hot that day. It, the smell was so overwhelming. It, like, it assaulted you as soon as you got onto the top floor. And my neighbor, Luce, came home that afternoon. And as soon as she got up onto the top floor, she said, that ain't no rat. <laughs> we called the fire department. They came and busted down the door. Our mystery neighbor had been dead in there for the whole time. I will never forget that smell. It, 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 it took weeks for that smell to go away. And I know that it's an absolutely repulsive story, but that's the point. It's a picture of your soul and my soul. It's not just the stench of death. It's the stench of sin in our lives. That's the point. The, the grave clothes represent the grip, not just that death has on our lives, the grip that sin has on our lives. Friends, um, you know, I recognize that that may be really offensive to some of you, the idea that, that your soul stinks. Some of you might say, well, look, no problem. You know, I know I need help. I know my life's a mess. But for others of you, you might say, look, nobody's perfect, including myself. But I'm basically a good person. I have an ethical code, which is more than some people can say. And I actually try to live up to it. I give to charity. I try to support the right causes. I support the right 
um, candidates. I'm on the right side of history here. I'm not a part of the problem. I'm trying to be a part of the solution. But deep in your heart, there's a pride. There's a self-sufficiency. There's a, a self-righteousness to us. It's in you. It's in me. It's in all of us. The natural default mechanism of every human heart is we want to justify ourselves. Not just to other people, but to ourselves and especially to God. We think that we deserve grace. We think we deserve it. But by definition, that's not grace. Because by definition, grace is an undeserved gift. If we think that we deserve grace, then it's not grace we want. It's justice. But grace, real grace, will always be deeply offensive to self-sufficient hearts. If the idea that you may not be quite as good a person as you think you are is offensive to you, that's because grace is offensive to you. It's because we divide the world into good people and bad people, and guess which group we're in. Friends, listen, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ will be absolutely meaningless to you Unless you know, and I mean know in the depths of your soul, that spiritually speaking, you're dead. You don't need a resurrection if you're not dead. You know? It, it, if you think that you're basically a good person, then you don't need a resurrection. You just need a booster shot. But the gospel doesn't tell us that God's goal is to take good people and make them into better people. It tells us that God takes dead people and makes them alive. That's what he's doing. That's what the gospel is. Every single one of us is in the grips of, of sin and death. We're all wrapped up in those grave clothes, and we need somebody to unwrap us, to unbind us, to set us free from the grave clothes of sin and death in our lives. And we don't have the power to do that. We need somebody powerful enough to free us from that, to unwrap us from the clothes of sin and death in our life. One of the most moving examples of that is a story from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia about a little boy named Eustace Scrubs. He almost deserved that name, says C.S. Lewis. He's a little boy. He's so nasty and, and, and wicked. And because of his greed and his selfishness and his pride, he turns into a dragon. But then one night, Aslan the lion, who represents Christ, comes to Eustace and he leads him to a pool in the middle of a garden high up on a mountain. And as soon as Eustace, um, the dragon boy, sees this pool of water, he can't wait to jump in the water and ease all the aches and pains of his dragonish body. But before he can get in the pool, Aslan tells him, you're going to have to undress first. And so he digs his fingers into the dragon skin and he pulls off the dragon skin. And just as he's about to jump in the pool of water, he sees that there's another dragon skin deeper and still on top of him. And so he pulls that one off only to find out there's another deeper dragon skin still underneath that one. And he's about to give up all hope when Aslan says, you'll have to let me undress you. And so here's what Eustace says about that. He says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying in the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he threw me into the pool. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw that I had become a boy again. 
Friends, do you know that you and I are just like Eustace? That we need somebody to get the dragon skin off of us and that we don't have the power to do it ourselves? And that we need someone, we need Jesus to get in there with his claws and go deep, way deeper than we can possibly go. That's scary. That's threatening. But don't you know that the claws of Jesus are claws of love? That he wants to get in deep into your heart and go deep into your sin, your self-righteousness, your self-sufficiency, your self-justification, and also deep into all the hurts and wounds and shame and fear of your life because it's all wrapped up together in one place. Jesus wants to go deep in our hearts and lives, and we can't do that for ourselves. We can trust him to do it, that his claws are claws of love because on the cross, Jesus Christ was wrapped in the grave clothes of our sin so that we could be robed in the beauty and glory of his righteousness. Jesus is the true source and fountain of life, but the fountain of life went into the tomb in order to get us out. Jesus experienced the ultimate decreation so that we could experience recreation. And friends, that leads to our last point. We've seen this message for our minds that we need to let the historical reality of the resurrection challenge and encourage us. But we've also seen this message for our hearts that we need Jesus to free us from the grave clothes of sin and death. But lastly, there's a message for our lives here. And we're only going to spend a little bit of time talking about it because next week's sermon is all about this. But there's one last thing these grave clothes show us, and it's this. They show us that the body that came out of the tomb is the very same body that went into the tomb. So on the one hand, it was a transformed body. Jesus can now materialize through locked doors. He can appear in one place and then another in a matter of moments. But on the other hand, there's continuity with the old body. It's still a physical body. The point is that this is a physical resurrection, a gloriously transformed body, yes, but a, but a physical material body all the same. There's continuity with the old body. So a little bit later, he invites Thomas, the disciple, to put his fingers into the holes in his hands inside. Or in another place, Jesus meets the disciples and he says, hey, do you guys have anything to eat? Give me a piece of that fish over there. I'm hungry. This is a physical resurrection. It's the same body but it's a gloriously transformed body. Now, here's the point for all of us. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection. First fruits is an agricultural term. It means the first crops that come up out of the ground in a harvest. First fruits is both a promise of more to come, but it's also a sample of what the rest is going to look like. That means that if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, that one day you are going to receive uh, the same kind of body that he has, a gloriously transformed body. That's the promise of the resurrection. That, but it's not just that, because the resurrection is not just a personal event, it's a global event. Jesus Christ is called the first fruits of the resurrection, but it's the resurrection of the whole world. It's not just a personal event, it's a global event because the Bible is a story from beginning to end. And the main storyline of the Bible is God created the world to be a place of beauty and perfection. But because of our rebellion, decreation has entered the world. Sin and death has entered the world now. But the rest of the Bible is the story of God's promise that one day God is going to bring 
about a total end to all of the effects of decreation. He's going to free us from all of the effects, free the whole world from all of the effects of sin and death, and renew this world to be the place that he created it to be. In other words, God is not surrendering to decreation. He's doing recreation. That's the promise of the resurrection. It's not a personal event. It's a global event. It's a worldwide cosmic event. And that is radically different from every other vision of the world you will find, not just in religion, but also in in any other approach to life or or this world, including secularism. Because the promise of the Bible is not that that God is going to destroy this world and carry us away to heaven. It's that one day God is going to renew this world by reconciling it and uniting it with heaven. That is a radically different promise and vision than anything you will find anywhere else. And that means that we have work to do. And when I say we, I mean the church. If Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, that means that he gathers and calls his church to be a first fruits community. A first fruits community, what does that mean? It means that if one day... This world is going to be completely free of all war and violence, and it is. Then Jesus calls his church to be the first fruits of peace. And if one day this world is going to be a place of of total and perfect um, healing, a place where there's no longer any sickness or death or disease, then Jesus calls his community to be the first fruits of healing and compassion. And if one day this world is going to be a place without any um, uh, injustice in it, a place of righteousness and equity, that means that Jesus calls his church to be a first fruits community of justice. Friends, being a first fruits community means that we don't just focus on our own private, personal, religious experience. Yes, um, Jesus frees every single one of us from all the effects of sin and death. But our personal appropriation of that is like walking through a doorway into a new world. It's not about the doorway. It's about the world that lies on the other side of the threshold. So if we focus only on our own private, personal religious experience, that's that's a capitulation to our culture's consumeristic, individualistic narrative that says spirituality is just one of thousands of, of options, consumer options out there for you, and just pick one that works for you. And it doesn't matter if it's true. All that matters is, does it make you happy? Does it help you express your inner self? If, if the church surrenders to that narrative, that anesthetizes and sidelines the church from being the first fruits community that Jesus has called it to be. Friends, we can't let that happen. And listen, I understand the separation of church and state, okay? But throughout history, the church has always been and desperately needs to be again a deeply subversive community, one that refuses to say Caesar is Lord or in our world empire is Lord or money is Lord or happiness is Lord or politics is Lord or science is Lord or technology is Lord or being true to your authentic self is Lord and refuses to say that and says, no, Jesus is Lord. We do that with our lips. We do that with our lives. How? We'll come back next week. We'll keep talking about it. I told you we were only going to talk about this a little bit. 
Next week, we're looking at the end of the Gospel of John, where, where, John, where Jesus sends his disciples out into the world. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. We'll talk about it. But for now, for this week, you need to know that the world you long for, the world you yearn for, a world of, of peace and justice and healing and renewal, that world, Jesus died and rose again in order to bring that world into being. Have you stepped over the threshold into that world? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical reality for your mind. It's a soul-healing reality for your heart. And it's a life-changing reality for this world. Let it challenge your mind. Let it encourage your heart. And let it transform your life so that you can take your place in the first fruits community of the risen Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.